European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 36, Issue 35, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lusher. Stroke Cardiac Causes and Their Management Acute ischemic stroke ranks high in morbidity and mortality statistics worldwide. Unfortunately, even today only a minority of patients receive interventional treatment. Recent advances in imaging, mechanical thrombectomy, and logistics demonstrated a better outcome in stroke patients managed invasively. This issue begins with a timely current opinion article entitled Ischemic Stroke and STEMI, Fast-Tracked Single-Stop Approach, by Peter Lanzer from the Healthcare Center in Bitterfeld, Germany. In it, the authors propose a streamlined, fast-tracked, single-stop approach to treat patients with ischemic stroke based on modified STEMI logistics to improve outcome of this devastating condition further. Besides atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter is also a potential cause of stroke. Since its first description about a century ago, our understanding of atrial flutter circuits has considerably evolved. One atrial flutter circuit can have variable ECG manifestations depending on the presence of pre-existing atrial lesion or an altered atrial substrate. Conversely, different right-sided or even left-sided atrial circuits, including different mechanisms, for instance macro-reentrant, micro-reentrant, or focal circuits, can present with a very similar surface ECG. The development of efficient, high-resolution electroanatomical mapping systems has improved our knowledge about atrial flutter, as well as facilitated its treatment with radiofrequency catheter ablation. Sok Sithikun Bun and co-workers from the Princess Grace Hospital in Monaco provide a comprehensive clinical review on atrial flutter more than just one of a kind. In it, the authors review ECG features of typical and atypical flutter and emphasize the limitations for circuit location from the surface ECG. Although stroke was commonly associated with myocardial infarction in the past, particularly in patients with severe left ventricular dysfunction and thrombus formation after the event, this complication has become quite rare with modern early reperfusion. Primary percutaneous intervention aims to re-establish normal coronary perfusion as soon as possible. To that end, many operators routinely use thrombectomy catheters to reduce thrombus load. The total trial enrolled 10,732 patients with ST-segment elevation infarction who were randomized to routine manual thrombectomy or PCI alone. Surprisingly, total showed no difference in the primary efficacy outcome between the two approaches, but a significant increase in stroke. In the first fast-track paper entitled Stroke in the Total Trial, a randomized trial of routine thrombectomy versus PCI alone in ST elevation myocardial infarction, Sanjeet Singh Jolly and colleagues from the McMaster University Population Health Research Institute in Hamilton, Canada, looked more closely at this issue to understand these surprising findings. The hazard ratio for stroke within 30 days, the primary safety outcome, was 2.06 in patients undergoing thrombectomy, a difference that was apparent within 48 hours. Furthermore, there was an increase in strokes within 180 days with minor or no disability with a hazard ratio of 1.38. 
most of the absolute differences were due to an increase in ischemic strokes within 180 days with a hazard ratio of 1.71, but there was also an increase in hemorrhagic strokes with a hazard ratio of 4.98. Patients that had a stroke had a mortality of 30.8% within 180 days as compared to 3.4% to those without a stroke. A meta-analysis of randomized trials involving 21,173 patients showed an increase in risk of stroke with an odds ratio of 1.59, but a trend towards a reduction in mortality with an odds ratio of 0.87. Thus, thrombectomy is associated with an increase in stroke, but based on a meta-analysis of all trials, possibly with a trend towards reduced mortality. Although primary percutaneous coronary interventions are state-of-the-art in the management of acute coronary syndromes, evidence from randomized controlled trials on the possible benefits of endovascular therapy for acute ischemic stroke showed conflicting results. In another fast-track paper on endovascular therapy for acute ischemic stroke, a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized trials, Partha Sardar and colleagues from the University of Utah Health Science Center in Salt Lake City analyzed clinical outcomes of intravenous fibrinolysis alone compared to intravenous fibrinolysis plus endovascular therapy in acute ischemic stroke. To that end, they selected randomized trials comparing endovascular therapy plus intravenous tissue plasminogen activator if eligible, with intravenous tissue plasminogen activator alone in eligible patients with acute ischemic stroke. The primary endpoint was good functional outcome as well as all-cause mortality and symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage. The meta-analysis included nine randomized trials, which randomized 2,530 patients with large vessel anterior circulation stroke. Endovascular therapy significantly improved the rate of functional independence compared to fibrinolysis alone, with an odds ratio of 1.66, with a number needed to treat of 9.6. All-cause mortality also tended to be lower with endovascular therapy compared to controls. Of note, the rate of symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage was not higher with endovascular therapy. Importantly, analysis of recent trials reported between 2014 and 2015 showed even further benefit of endovascular therapy with an odds ratio of 2.3 and numbers needed to treat of 5.2 with similar safety. Thus, in centers with advanced stroke care, endovascular therapy improves functional outcomes in patients with acute ischemic stroke of the anterior circulation and large artery occlusion without compromising safety. Patent foramen ovale is considered a potential cause of stroke due to paradoxical embolism. The use of closure devices has been discussed controversially, with meta-analyses in general providing a trend to a favorable effect of the procedure. Thus, antithrombotic therapy remains potentially a valuable alternative. In the third clinical research manuscript entitled Anticoagulant versus antiplatelet therapy in patients with cryptogenic stroke and patent foramen ovale, an individual participant data meta-analysis. David M. Kent and colleagues from the Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts, notes that the best antithrombotic strategy for secondary prevention in patients with cryptogenic stroke and patent foramen ovale continues to be unknown. 
The authors therefore pooled multiple observational studies and used propensity-based methods to estimate the comparative effectiveness of oral anticoagulation compared to antiplatelet therapy in 2,385 patients with 227 composite endpoints, i.e. stroke, TIA, and or death. The difference between oral anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy was not statistically significant for the primary composite outcome or for the secondary outcome of stroke alone. Results were consistent in analyses applying alternative weighting schemes, with the exception that oral anticoagulation had a statistically significant beneficial effect on the composite outcome in analyses standardized to the patient population who actually received antiplatelet therapy with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.64. Subgroup analyses did not detect statistically significant heterogeneity of treatment effects across clinically important patient groups. Thus, the authors did not find a significant difference between oral anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy. Their results therefore justify randomized trials comparing different antithrombotic approaches in these patients. The understanding of the mechanisms of atrial fibrillation is essential for a better prevention of embolic strokes associated with arrhythmia. The complex architecture of the human atria can create physical substrates for sustained re-entry that drive atrial fibrillation. The existence of sustained anatomically defined drivers of atrial fibrillation in humans has been challenged partly due to the lack of simultaneous endocardial-slash-epicardial mapping coupled with high-resolution 3D structural imaging. In the fourth basic science paper, entitled Atrial Fibrillation Driven by Microanatomic Intramural Reentry Revealed by Simultaneous Subepicardial and Subendocardial Optical Mapping in Explanted Human Hearts, Vadim V. Vedorov and colleagues from the Ohio State University in Columbus, USA, investigated coronary perfused human right atria from explanted hearts that were optically mapped simultaneously by three high-resolution CMOS cameras. 3D gadolinium-enhanced MRI revealed that the atrial wall structure varied in thickness from 1 to 7 millimeters, and interstitial fibrosis causing transmural activation delay from 23 to 43 milliseconds at increased pacing rates. Dual-sided subendocardial and subepicardial optical mapping revealed that atrial fibrillation was driven by spatially and temporally stable intramural re-entry with a cycle length of 107 milliseconds and transmural activation delay of 67 milliseconds. Intramural re-entry drivers were captured primarily by subendocardial mapping, while subepicardial mapping visualized re-entry or breakthrough patterns. Reentrant drivers were anchored on 3D microanatomic tracks formed by atrial musculature, characterized by increased transmural fiber angle differences and interstitial fibrosis. Targeted radiofrequency ablation of the tracks verified these reentries as drivers of atrial fibrillation. The authors conclude that integrated 3D structural functional mapping of diseased human right atria ex vivo revealed that the complex atrial microstructure caused significant differences between endocardial and epicardial activation during pacing and sustained atrial fibrillation driven by intramural re-entry anchored to fibrosis-insulated atrial bundles. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.